James chapter 4, and then we'll finish up with 1 John chapter 2, just a few verses there. James chapter 4, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now please turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll pick up the reading at verse 15, where John writes, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And God will bless that public reading of his holy word for his name's sake. Please bow with me for a moment. Let's ask the Lord to come alongside. Father in heaven, we do pray in the Savior's name that thou wilt draw near to us. Leave not thy servant alone in this pulpit to his notes. Give him an unction, an empowerment by the Holy Spirit who has been given that thy servants might proclaim thy word. We ask, Father, in Heaven, that thy people will find themselves drawn away, as it were, shut in with thee, corral the wandering thoughts, take the sleepiness that so often comes at the end of a long day. Take it away, Lord, we pray. Renew this flesh, we pray, that we might hear the truth and be renewed in our spirits. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen and amen. Any serious study of the pursuit, the Christian pursuit of holiness must take into consideration the great antagonist to this pursuit, namely the devil. If you're going to study holiness, you've got to study the antagonist to that holiness. In the context of dealing with 
various sins that were plaguing the churches to whom the Apostle James uh, writes his epistle, he makes a very plain yet bold statement in the last half of verse 7. Does he not resist the devil and he will flee from you? Integral to the efforts of God's people, as, as Peter put it, to be holy for The Lord your God is holy. Every child of God must be able to know how to stand against the wiles of the devil, his tactics, and not be ignorant of his devices, Paul says, or his strategies that he uses to stand in the way of this pursuit of holy living. He stood against you today. Somewhere, somehow, some way, he resisted your efforts to please the Lord. That's what he's about. And if we're going to have any kind of helpful understanding of how to pursue holiness, we're going to have to understand what the devil is up to. We need to understand who we're dealing with, how he wars against the Lord's people, And not only the Lord's people, but anything and everything that is godly. It's especially Satan's goal to destroy, as as much as he can, our ability to fulfill our chief end in life, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's real holy living. In doing that, he is striking at God, which is his ultimate target. You and I are just a ways to an end to get at God. That's his real enemy. His tactics to achieve that end are clearly set down in the Lord's word. For instance, since the word of God, as we know from our shorter catechism, is the only rule, the only rule to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy him, it becomes a very specific object of his attack. He knows that truth as well as we do. He seeks to create darkness about what God has said in his word by trying to corrupt it. He's not afraid to use the scriptures at all as long as he can pervert the doctrines that it teaches or he can add to or take away from the word, or he can put such a spin upon the word that it means something entirely different than what God intended it to mean. He also attempts in this warfare against our holy living is to instill doubts in our minds about the word of God. Hath God said was his first question to Eve at the very beginning. And he has not changed that tactic since, creating doubts about what God has said in his word. And he especially does this by playing the role of an accuser. He's called that an accuser. And he will uh, come and accuse us about God, say wrong things, call God things that he's not, try to get us to believe things about God that simply aren't true, 
or he comes and makes accusations to us about us. The accuser and slanderer of the brethren. And all of that, he, 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 knows, the, he, he knows the warfare. What, what he's about is to try to destroy as much as he can our understanding of, our grip of the Word of God. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ put it very plainly in John chapter 17 in the prayer as the great high priest he made to his Father in heaven before the cross. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The devil heard that. He heard that. He knows that the great means God uses to sanctify his people, to wash them, to, to grow them in holiness, is his own truth, his own word. It's the word of God. It's God picking his word, like tonight, and using that to make us more like Jesus Christ. You can see why he attacks it, creates doubts about it. If he can do that... He has weakened the ability we have to honor the Lord and enjoy Him. Believe you me, Eve lost her ability to glorify the Lord when she listened to the lie, the accusation that Satan made to her about God. He's not telling you the whole story, Eve. You're missing out on something. He's holding back. There's a much better way to live than this. You're just being stymied. You can't have any of the fruit of the tree of the garden. See the lie? The twist? But there's another way the devil comes to Christians and his attacks and his ways he has of stopping our progress in holiness. And, and that's as the corrupter. Of God's word, he promotes darkness about the word of God. As the accuser, he promotes doubts about it. But there's another way, and that's as the tempter. As the tempter, he promotes disobedience to the word of God. And that is the strategy I want us to focus on this evening. Satan as the tempter of God's people. When the devil came to entice Christ in the wilderness to disobey the Scripture. I want you to know that's what he was about every time. All three times it was disobey the Word of God. Matthew says, the tempter came to him. The tempter. Not a tempter, but the tempter. That little article placed in front of that noun teaches us some important truths about, truths about this arch enemy of our souls. First, that there is, and I'm only just getting into some introductory material before I even get to my first point. So if you're wondering, has he got his first point yet? No, I'm not even there yet. This is all just setting up what I need to deal with tonight and tomorrow morning. And tomorrow afternoon. There is a great difference between the devil's temptations, as we think about him being the tempter, the devil's temptations and God's temptations. God is never called the tempter in Scripture. In fact, man is never called the tempter in Scripture. But we do read in the Old Testament that God tempted men. 
For example, in Genesis chapter 22, God did tempt Abraham. And we do read that man tempted God. In Numbers chapter 14, that tragic scene where Israel is turned back from entering into the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea, God says to Israel that you have tempted me these ten times. But never ever in the Old Testament is this word tempted used to describe a solicitation to do evil, a solicitation to sin. James He earlier states in chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And when man is said to tempt God, it means that he's he's trying. He's testing God's patience, God's wisdom, God's justice, challenging him, if you will, to give proof of being who he says he is, or is his word true or not? Is the promise really true? Is the declaration he's made really going to come to pass? That's tempting God. But when the Holy Spirit calls the devil the tempter, he is underscoring the truth, as John Calvin puts it, that temptations which solicit us to what is evil come from him alone. They come from him alone. He is the tempter. So that means behind some other human being soliciting you to do something evil, you want to know who was behind that? The tempter. It was Satan. It's called the tempter because the principal work and business which he engages in more than anything else is to induce men to sin, to disobey the word of God. That's what it was with Eve in the garden. That's what it was with Christ in the wilderness. That's what it is with you and with me all the time. To tempt us to disobey the word of God. Another word to not be holy, but to act unholy. Disobedience to God's word is unholy living. Now, how does the devil go about using this strategy of temptation to get us to disobey the word of God and so, in turn, dishonor him, not glorify him, and certainly when we're dishonoring him, we're not happy. We're not enjoying the Lord. Because the more you glorify the Lord, the more you honor him, the happier you are. And the happier you and I are, the more we glorify the Lord. So how does he go about trying to destroy that? John says, his main attack is all wrapped up In the world. We read chapter 2. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world. The love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh. 
And the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God, (laughs) that's holiness, that's obeying the word of God, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right, there are three statements he makes in in those verses. One, all that is in the world is of the world. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. It comes from the world. If anyone, number two, loves the world or the things in the world, then he is not in possession of the Father's love. Number three, all of these things in the world can be summed up under one of three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. All three of those, by the way, are summed up in verse 17 under one heading, the lust of the world. The lust of the world. Now I want you to see how John describes the man who stands in stark contrast to anyone who loves the world. He doeth, in verse 17, 1 John 2, he doeth the will of God. The desire for all that is in the world leads quite naturally to not doing the will of God. The devil hates holiness and he hates obedience. And the world over which he reigns, he's the prince of it, follows that mold. Let me remind you, as I just pointed out, three times Christ, in John's gospel, calls him the prince of this world. What do you think, therefore, is the most... He's found to be the most effective tactic in leading men into sin, leading Christians into sin. It's the lusts of the world. He's a master at it. He knows how powerful the lusts of the world actually are upon a child of God. All of this, of course, begs the question, what is the meaning of the word world in John's epistle? Because we are not going to understand what lusts are if we don't have a grasp of what the world is. And we certainly won't understand what the terms worldly and worldliness mean unless we understand what John means when he speaks of the world. As crucial as it is to understand those terms, I'm afraid there's a whole lot of confusion about what worldliness is and what the world is, and the devil is quite happy about that because he wants confusion over what is the world and what is worldliness. They're thrown about so loosely. But you and I need to know if we're considering pursuing a life of holiness, Since worldliness is opposed to holiness, we need to understand what real worldliness is. You see, the devil knows a rule in all this. It's fundamental. He who defines the terms wins. And you can rest assured that his definition of worldliness and of the world 
will have an admixture of truth and lie. I mean, John's statement is very simple. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. Those words are... John, John was... Uh, you know, it's, in, in Greek class, it's one of the first things they put you into, either the Gospel of John or First John. It's just, it's easy Greek. Peter is something else altogether different, very difficult. But John, simple words. But boy, they run deep. For all of its simplicity, it's certainly one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. The end result is that you have Christians labeling things as worldly when they're not worldly in the slightest. They are not worldly, but that's the name slapped upon them. On the flip side, you have Christians who refuse to recognize anything as worldly, don't want to even go there, and if you actually use the word, you're called a legalist. So now, now because of the confusion, you have professing Christians asking questions like, are there certain styles of music that are actually worldly? And why does the devil have to have always have the good music? Is it being worldly if I download the latest Christian rap music on my iPad or my iPhone or my Android or my laptop? Because the lyrics are so biblical. They're so orthodox. They're spot on. Is it wrong to do that? How much violence or foul language in a movie makes it off limits? How much cursing should be allowed before the stop button is hit and say, not watching that? Is it okay to watch a movie that has an R rating as long as I fast forward past the nude scenes? Is that okay? Is it being worldly for a Christian to make lots of money and drive a Mercedes or BMW or Audi or Bentley or whatever? Is it, is it worldly to do that? Am I being worldly if I, as a woman, I'm not, but... It's hypothetical. Am I being worldly if I wear slacks? Is that worldliness? According to Scripture. What if I wear makeup? What if I paint my fingernails and my toes? Is that worldliness? Is it worldly to play the lottery? Is it being worldly to have a beer or a glass of wine with your dinner? And you all are just dying to know my answers to those questions. 
And so the list of what is and what isn't worldly goes on. Some Christians want a hard and fast list of do's and don'ts. They want their minister to tell them, here it is, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. And they're fine with that. Just tell me. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to come to my own decisions based upon me searching the scriptures as to what is really worldly and what isn't. Others don't want the questions asked at all. Some would actually get upset with me that I simply raise these questions. Both approaches are wrong, and both have missed the point of the text. And whenever this happens, you discover that the church loses her distinctiveness from the world. When this kind of confusion comes in, you can be dead on sure the church has lost her distinctiveness from the world. Why? Because Satan has done a masterful job through lies and deceptions. We have lost our sensitivity to and understanding of the very danger and presence of worldliness in the church. Because we don't even know what it is. And that's tragic. Right now, at least, it's not persecution that has devastated the church in America. It's that the tempter has made such inroads in seducing the church with the world. This is the great seduction that has wrought so much travesty in the spiritual life of the church of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter if you're Reformed Baptist, if you're Free Presbyterian, if you're Independent, makes no difference. The tragedy is there. It's taken place because this truth right here has been lost sight of. I have a book in my, I think it's still in my library. I hope I didn't give it away, the books I gave away. But James Hunter was his name. He wrote a book in 1987 called Evangelicalism, colon, The Coming Generation. Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation. Almost 35 years ago, he wrote about this loss of clear distinction between the church and the world. Here's what he wrote. Evangelicals still adhere, you'll be shocked at this one because things have changed in 35 years. Evangelicals, but he's writing 35 years ago, evangelicals still adhere to prohibitions against premarital, extramarital, and homosexual relations. Is that true right now? No. Homosexual... At least if you're a true evangelical, you say that's unbiblical. And adultery, well, yeah. But premarital, you can live with someone in the church, they won't say a thing about it. Evangelicals. He goes on. But even here, even here, the attitude toward those prohibitions has noticeably, noticeably softened. Right? 35 years ago, he saw it. They're getting weak on this, this distinctiveness. 
I mean, the church was always clear upon premarital relations, extramarital relations, and homosexual relations. But 35 years ago, he said, it's softening, it's weakening. Many of the distinctions separating Christians, Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have, within a generation, lost most of their traditional meaning. Unquote. Don't even know what it is. That was 35 years ago. Three decades ago. What do you think it's like now, folks? One preacher describes the church as letting down her guard against worldliness in these words, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. That was C.H. Spurgeon in the late 1800s. What would he say now? In another message in 1867, he declared, these are critical words, put your finger on any prosperous age in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus, in this age, man could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times where the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ, and the more potent is her witness against sin. Well said, Mr. Spurgeon. D.L. Moody put it succinctly when he said, a line should be drawn between the church and the world, and every Christian should get both feet out of the world. So the problem we're facing today on a large scale is defining the terms worldly and worldliness. So before we can begin to look at how the devil as the tempter attacks Christians through the lusts of the flesh and the world and the pride of life to hamper their pursuit of holiness, we need to find out what the Holy Spirit means by the word world. So, if you're taking notes, here's the first point, and the only point I will have tonight, defining the terms, defining the terms. We have to begin with this premise Whatever the Spirit of God meant by using this word world, its meaning is constant in any age. Whatever he meant when he spoke of the world, the meaning of that term has to be constant in every age. In other words, if somehow John and I could sit down in a room and have a discussion about loving the world, we would see the same thing. We would be eye to eye on the meaning of the word world and the phrase, love not the world. Even though we're thousands of years apart. 
the application, yes, the, the, the manifestation of loving the world, worldliness, may look different in his day than it would in mine in specific terms, but our fundamental understanding of what worldliness was, of what the world was, would be the exact same thing. This is the world. Doesn't matter what day you're talking about. What age. Let me, let me start by saying what the terms we're trying to define are not. What these terms are not. John, John is not, he is not advocating that the way to resist the devil is to live in a monastery or a nunnery. Separate from the world in that fashion. That's not what it's all about. There is no way under God's heaven you and I can be the light of the world and be the salt of the earth by shutting ourselves off from the world. If we try to escape from the lust of the world and the tempter by cutting ourselves off from all kind of contact with the world. You all know the story of Luther. He tried to do that and failed miserably. Because you carry the sinful lust with you in the nunnery of the monastery. John is using the term world, and it's consistent throughout. To refer to the organized system, the organized system of fallen humanity that is ruled by Satan, the prince of that world. The organized system of fallen humanity ruled by Satan, who is the prince of this world Christ said in Luke chapter 11, If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? He has a kingdom. He has a world in which he rules. They're his subjects. They do his bidding. The devil's kingdom, this place where Satan exerts his authority, is this present world, this evil world. It is anything... And everything in this world that is opposed to Christ and to Christ's people and to Christ's kingdom. Anything that opposes it. Anything that stands in its way. Anything that would seek to hurt, to harm. The church of the living God is the, this world and its prince is the devil. Now, you know, folks, you could just take that one thought right there home for a while and begin to think about it and talk about it. What does that mean then, therefore? What does that mean about how I am to understand that's worldly or that's not worldly? Does it stand in opposition to the kingdom of Christ? Is it, is it opposed to what pleases Christ? Is it something that will actually be a hindrance to that kingdom advancing in my own home or in my own heart? If it is, it's worldly. If it doesn't, it's not worldly. You might have different preferences about one thing or the other, but it's not worldly. Don't, it's just as wrong to call something worldly when it isn't as it is to call something that isn't worldly. worldly. They're both wrong. John chapter 15, verse 9, he wrote in his gospel, well, the Lord did, he said, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. 
But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world hates Christ. The world hates Christ's people because we're not of them. Here in 1 John 5, 19, the apostle writes, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. We know. Here's confidence. Here's assurance. We know that we are of God. We belong to God. We're of his kingdom, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Let me give you a literal rendering of the original language for that last statement. The whole world lieth under the control of the wicked one. That's what it's saying. The whole world lieth under the control of the wicked one. So the world is that which is positively hostile to God. Or as James says, it's at enmity with God. There's a war going on between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. They're not friends, they're enemies. Eternal enemies. There is no reconciliation. There's no peace that can be made between them. There's no middle ground they can come to and say, well, let's work out our differences. We're talking about infinite hostility. That is why we are forbidden by the Lord to love this world and to love the lusts of this world. If we knowingly or unknowingly conform to it, we will be contaminated by it. Conformity means contamination. And we're living in a day like never before where the world is in our face, up front and close. Through electronic media, it can come into our homes in a way it never could before. Our workplace, our car, the grocery store, anywhere you turn, you come face to face with the prince of this world and his kingdom. And it is part of the opposition to stop you in your pursuit of holiness, of being like Jesus Christ. Its corrupt value system bombards the church through television, movies, the internet, music, magazines, iPhones, iPods, iPads, Android devices. Not just picking on Apple, because it's all part of the Let me stop here for a minute. Uh, Evil is not inherent in matter. So there's nothing evil about having an iPhone. I I don't like them. They go to the dark side. I say if you have an iPhone, Android is a better one. But it's not sin to have an iPad or an iPhone. That, that's not the point. While s- some of these things are not evil in and of themselves, 
Yet they act as the means of Satan he uses to tempt you, to tempt you to sin against God. And they're powerful. They are powerful. You want to know how I know they're powerful? If I've told you the story, I've only been here once in the last few months, so I don't think I did. But if I had, you just put up with me for a second. And this is, this is not, uh, well, at the risk of sounding like I'm talking about myself, which I'm talking about myself, but it taught me how powerful one source of media was. Our little girl, a baby first child, was maybe three months old. And my wife was going shopping one Saturday with her, with her mother. And I was to watch the baby. And it was Saturday afternoon. And you see, on Saturday afternoons, we had this old, big, black and white television. I'm dating myself now, black and white. Right? And you know what came on Sunday afternoons that I loved to watch? Kung Fu Theater. And I had the baby this time. And she had colic. And I was trying to watch Kung Fu Theater. And she was screaming, and I was mad at her. That told me, at that point in time, how powerful media actually is. That was a Saturday afternoon. Monday morning, my TV was on the front sidewalk for the trash man. I did not want that to trump my love for my daughter. It's powerful. You know another way I can see how powerful it is? If a stranger walked into your living room or your bedroom, whatever your, if you have a TV where it is, and just began to use profane language, what would you do? You would stop him immediately. Excuse me. Stop that. So I asked the question, how come then it's okay to watch movies where they're speaking vile language, taking God's name in vain, cursing left and right? And Christians don't get up and just turn it off. How come it's okay? Because they're just acting? Is that, is that it? Is that what makes it all right? To hear cursing? Do you realize that I have not done a survey on this, but I imagine it's true that most of little children in Christian homes heard their first curse words from the television. More than likely, some movie that was being watched and there was God's name taken in vain. Now that's worldly. There's nothing inherently evil in the television. It's just electronics, right? But oh my, it is a powerful tool, just like the internet. Same thing. There's no wonder in my mind at all why there is so much worldliness in the church of Jesus Christ and it's not even recognized as being worldly. I know that I would be labeled a legalist for what I just said And many, many, many 
Bible-believing, fundamental churches. But all that matters is, what does the Scripture say? If it's worldly, if it's of the world, then it's in opposition to the pursuit of holiness. And all we do end up, end up doing is engaging. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you, it's insanity, it's suicide. You, you actually invite those things into your life that are opposed to you advancing in holiness. What, what else, what other conclusion can you and I come to than that? What other conclusion can we come to than that? There's not a day that goes by for you or me when Satan doesn't try to force us into a place where we have to make a decision. Am I going to love the world or am I going to love God? Am I going to hear his voice or am I going to listen to the voice of the Lord? Every day that happens. That's what it's not about. So now, what is worldliness This big enemy to our souls. This big tool that the devil uses. What is worldliness all about? Well, it's all about this word, love. Are we surprised? Since holiness, what's it all about? The commandments, right? But tell me, the first table of the law is summed up as what? By Jesus Christ. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and might. Second table is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The summary of the law of the Lord is all wrapped up in the word love. It's no surprise, therefore, that we find, as James or as John, either one is dealing with this world, it's all about what you love. Love not the world. That's the word. Love not the world. Worldliness is about loving the things of this fallen evil world. It's about loving its values, its pursuits, and those things are in direct opposition to God and to your pursuit of holiness. Worldliness is a lot of things, but for instance, worldliness is putting our opinion or man's opinion above God's word. You value your opinion about something. I imagine that that'd be sitting here. I hope not here, but I'm sure that I've preached in churches and I made some statement, and the, the some individual didn't like it. No matter how much scripture I had to back it up, well, I don't agree with him. Well, you don't, it's not me You're disagreeing with what is plainly taught in the scripture. What you're really saying is, I value my own opinion more than I value the statement of Scripture. That's worldliness. It desires worldliness, desires the sinful things of this wicked world over the plain commandments of Christ. What is it that characterizes your life the most? What dominates your thinking? 
And what excites you the most? What do you really get excited about? Is it the pleasures of this world as opposed to that which pleases God? Do you, do you find yourself thinking more and more and more about growing prosperous in this world more than you do about growing prosperous in your spiritual life? Answers to questions like those say a lot about where we are in our pursuit of holiness. Now, I'm, I'm well aware, believe me from experience, that mentioning, just mentioning the terms worldliness and worldly to Christians, you'll find you have a fight on your hands. Their, their backs get up. Some Christians think of it only in terms of the externals, having a certain set of standards And if you don't meet up to those standards, then you are viewed as worldly. Other Christians, they have no patience for such legalistic mentality. And they believe you shouldn't even try to define worldliness. But both of those views are wrong. To focus merely on the externals, on this list that has been drawn up, is to miss the whole point of what John has been driving at. You see, this this is about loving the world. And love is about something that's very much internal. It's not about something external. It's about where your heart is. What your heart's taken up with. What impresses your heart. You know, you can be ever so careful that your, your dress is not worldly. And that your language is not worldly. And that your haircut is not worldly. And that the kind of music you listen to is not worldly. And yet you can still be very, very worldly. The essence of worldliness is not our outward behavior. Though it's true that that's what's on the inside will manifest it on the outside. But John is talking about the lusts of the world and the lusts of the flesh and the pride of the heart. It's the reaction on the inside, the reaction of of the inside to what's happening on the outside that determines worldliness or not. In this matter of worldliness, the Holy Ghost is drawing our attention to what a man craves, what he covets, what he wants what he thinks about, what really moves him, what makes him tick, what really interests him. That's all inside. And what Satan does is come to us, knowing right well that this 
talk more about this tomorrow. Knowing right well that there is this principle of sin that lies within Christ's people, he knows he has an ally within us, and he comes to us and sets something that the flesh naturally, naturally craves. It's a natural desire. He sets that before the child of God, but what he is setting before the child of God, while it is natural, it's something that the Lord forbids. And he knows it. That's what he's after. For you to do something that God forbids you to do. It might only be in some little thing. Eh? That is so often his way. Just some little, mm, that's all right, I can do that and be fine. But then before you know it, it's a little thing and then a bigger thing and then a bigger thing. And you find yourself so far removed you would have never thought about you'd be there. But you know how it started? Setting one little thing before your flesh. And you succumbed. And then he gets you to the point where he says, I got you. He's a master at doing that. He wants confusion about worldliness. He doesn't care if you... All you do is sing the old hymns of the faith. And all you do is dress modestly. And then you never say a curse word. But if the devil has that inside. And your real interest in life are not heavenly. And you're setting your affection on things here on the earth and not on things above. He's got you. And you're not making the advances in holiness that you could. And that you should. That's of the world. And that is worldliness, brothers and sisters. It's just how Satan uses these areas to tempt us to sin that I want us to consider tomorrow morning. Until then, I think you have a lot to think about. And I hope and I pray it will stoke a lot of conversation amongst yourselves. Is this or that worldly? Is it really? If you can nail it as being worldly, then you've just said, I have got something that is abetting Satan's effort to stop me in my pursuit of holiness. And I only have one option. I must kill the enemy whatever that looks like. And if I'm calling things worldly and they're really not worldly, all I'm doing is deceiving myself and patting myself on the back and I get very self-righteous because I think I'm a good boy and a good girl. All the while, the devil is laughing. Hallelujah, the story doesn't end there. You need to find out exactly how the devil uses these things and then how we oppose him in our pursuit of being like Jesus Christ. The Lord write his word on our hearts for his namesake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy presence among us this evening. Give us a clear understanding 
of what we are to be in this world. Give us a clear understanding of how we are to go about glorifying Thee in our daily living and enjoying Thee. Lord, show us our worldliness, for we know the heart is deceitful and the devil is a liar. Show us, we pray, those things that we know are harming our walk with Thee. Yes, Lord, we would confess Many a time it's not as if it's something we don't know about, but we do know fully about. Grant us grace, we pray, to resist the devil. Thou hast promised that he will flee. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.